You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. Psalm 90. Psalm 90. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12 this evening. Uh, We are finishing our series, Summer in the Psalms. Right, um, And next week we're going to be starting a new series called Twisted Scripture, which I made this joke last week, but it sounds a lot like Twisted Sister. That's really funny to me. Uh, but yeah, next week we'll be starting uh, a new series called Twisted Scripture where we will be taking verses that people often quote out of context and putting them back into context where they should have stayed the whole time. Um, but yeah, so Psalm 90. I'm going to level with you guys. Uh, this evening's sermon is, is going to be Probably a little bit longer than usual. I usually try to keep things around 40 minutes or so, but this one might take some time. Maybe not. I tried to edit it down uh, for your sake. But there's a lot of important things for us to look at and consider in these 12 verses. Uh, so I'm just going to cut to the chase. Right? Normally I try to have some kind of an introduction uh, to grab your attention. Right? Just letting you know that. But I hope that this grabs your attention enough. Here's my big idea uh, for this sermon. Here's what we're driving at. Life is short. Death is imminent. God's hatred of sin is real. Therefore, we must ask God to give grace so that we can live wisely. I'll say that one more time. Life is short. Death is imminent. God's hatred of sin is real. Therefore, we must ask God to give grace so that we can live wisely. Psalm 90 verses 1 through 12. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of the scriptures. We ask that you would do a work of sovereign grace this evening, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that our hearts might be soft, that we might be receptive uh, to the preached word this evening. Lord, teach us to number our days. Please bless me and use me as an instrument. Let, let, a, let a weak man uh, proclaim the truth of the gospel this evening. Help us, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 
All right, so a little bit of context for you. The, the, the introduction to this psalm tells us that this is a prayer of Moses, all right? Moses, the Moses, the guy who led the Israelites out of Egypt. This is a prayer of Moses, and this is also the oldest psalm. Moses actually penned it. This is, this is the oldest psalm. Uh, and some commentators think that Moses wrote this prayer after God had condemned the unbelieving and murmuring Israelites to wander the desert for 40 years. Right, a lot of commentators think that this was written during the wilderness wanderings. Uh, and that setting would make sense. There are definitely parallels, or at least I think that there are parallels, between this psalm or prayer and the things that were going on to the Israelites uh, in the wilderness. But since this text itself doesn't tell us the occasion for Moses to write this, I don't think that I have the liberty to go ahead and apply that. Right? So I think it's best for us to look at this prayer of Moses as broadly as we can and apply it broadly as well. If the introduction would have told us this was written during the wilderness wanderings, then we would apply it that way. But let's look at this broadly and apply it broadly. So we're just going to walk through the text like we always do. Verses 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's one of the most famous phrases in the entire Psalter. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses starts his prayer with the affirmation of a central truth of our faith. And that is that God is eternal. That he's, that he's eternal and he's unchanging. That before the earth and the world was created, there was God. There he was. From everlasting to everlasting. Meaning God is eternal in both past, from everlasting, eternity past, and into eternity future. From everlasting to everlasting, there he is. Moses is telling us that God has no beginning and no end. That there has never been a time when God is not. He just is and always has been. It, tells, it says his name is I am. I am. I just am. I am pure being. I am. So Moses is telling us that God is above time. He's above time. Everlasting to everlasting. Though God created it and he acts in it to be God to us and to save sinners and to rule the cosmos, right? He, he interacts in time, but he is above it. Not only that, but God is the only uncreated thing in the universe. Again, I can't stress this enough. It's just a, a wild concept. When there was nothing else, there was God. When there was nothing else, there was God. And he will never change. Right? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, you are God, and you will not change. And he will never die. He has no origin point, no ending point. He is the eternal God. And this is really hard for us to comprehend. All right? From our earthly perspective, everything has a point of origin. Everything. Everything that exists right now, with the exception of God, did not exist at some point in the past. Right? It was brought into existence. The trees that you drive by, right? if you live out in the sticks... In God's country, you see all these trees everywhere, and you know that they didn't, always, they didn't always exist. There was a point in time where they came into existence. You, you did not always exist. Your parents, this building, right? Everything that exists was brought into existence. And someday in the future, it won't exist anymore. Again, this is very simple. You guys know this stuff. But someday in the future, everything won't exist anymore. But here, Moses declares that God is unlike his creation. Everything in creation had a beginning point and an ending point, but not God. He is the eternal God. Isaiah 57, 15, chapter 57, verse 15 of Isaiah says that God inhabits eternity. I was reading a commentator. He says, we can't really get that. Like, we don't get that, that God inhabits eternity. We really can't fathom this idea of eternity. It's just, it really, if we're going to be honest, right, Dr. Merriweather's here. He's a philosopher. I would argue it's just a concept, 
right? Like we can't really wrap our heads around eternity. We really can't understand it fully because nothing in our natural world is eternal. You can't really get your mind around it. Like, have you ever just sat and thought about eternity? Like, right, like raw foreverness, right? Like I used to do that a lot when I was a little kid, and I still try to do it from time to time now because it's a wise thing to do. Um, but when I was a kid, I used to do it, and I think that's the closest thing to an existential crisis that an eight-year-old can have, right? To like think about eternity and that before the universe existed, God was there in and of himself just being, just being. But eternity, eternity baffles the mind and, confound, and confounds us. But eternity, or rather eternality, is God's nature. So Moses, what he's done in verses 1 and 2, is he takes us up into the highest realm of truth. Right? God's eternal nature. He makes us think lofty. Look at this eternal God that doesn't begin, doesn't end, but just is. And then he just slams us down into the dust of the earth. Verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. That's on purpose. Look at this big God. Boom, he just throws us down into the dust. And this is a poetic way of saying that we are all going to die someday. We're all going to die someday. And I know that all the children are up here with us. Parents, if you've not been talking to your children about this, I'm going to do it for you. Right? We're all going to die someday. To be returned to dust is a reference to Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, as God's pronouncing curse on Adam and Eve, on mankind. God tells Adam, from dust you came, and to dust you will return. All of that is to say, we are mortal. We're mortal. All of us have an expiration date. Right? In the words of Vody Bauckham, the death rate is one to one last time I checked. This is one of the central themes of the first half of this psalm. This psalm, in, in some regards, can be classified as a lament. It's a sad psalm. It's a lament that our time is short and we all die. That's, that's profound. Our time is short and we all die. It's a profound concept that death is the most certain thing about life. That from the moment you're born, you begin to die. And that's a truth that we need to meditate on. But it's a truth that we tend to neglect, right? At least in American culture, we pretend like we're going to live forever. Have you seen like, people like Kenny Rogers walking around with so much plastic surgery in their face, they look like an alien? Why? Because they want to give the illusion of youth. They don't want to own the fact that I'm getting old and I'm going to die. We live in a culture that rejects that thought, at least in practice. We pretend like we're going to live forever. I heard a preacher say uh, about this idea, he says, we spend our money, right? We know we only have a finite amount of money, so we, we're frugal, right? We don't want to spend money on unnecessary things, but yet we spend our time as if it's just an infinite resource for us because we think that we're going to live forever. We're foolish. So we're all going to die. And verse 3 tells us that we don't die randomly either. It says God is the one who returns us to the earth, right? At his discretion, is the sovereign God. When he is pleased to call us to death, we die. Our lives and our deaths are ultimately in his hand. And everything is determined by him. Everything. The day you're going to die has already been predetermined. He has numbered our days. Psalm 139. Before I lived my first day, you had all of my days written out in your book, is what David says. He's in control of when we die. And we can check out at any time. 
whenever he pleases. But then Moses juxtaposes our death with God's eternality in verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So here's this finite man, and then God, a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past, or a watch in the night. For God, a thousand years is like a watch in the night. Now, by Jewish reckoning, that's four hours. <laughs> a thousand years is like four hours to God. Right? So even if we were to live as long as Methuselah, who is the longest living person in biblical record, 969 years, our lives would still only be like yesterday to God. And what, it's, it's poetic. Yesterday is gone. Right? It was quick. What yesterday went by quickly. At least it did for me. Our lives, even if we live to be a thousand years, are unimpressive to God. They're short from his perspective. And I think that's Moses' big point so far, is that we all die, and we die quickly. If a thousand years is like four hours to God, what is our lifespan? Ten minutes? It's unimpressive, and it's short. We don't have much time here on earth. So while God is eternal and controls life and death, man is finite and fragile. We're gone like a wisp of smoke. But Moses then goes on to illustrate this truth in verses 5 and 6. He says, you sweep them away as with a flood, meaning mankind swept away like a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. We're like grass. Right? Like, just go with me on this. This is God's word. This is the word of God in this verse. What he has said about us, and he's speaking through Moses as Moses is carried along by the Holy Spirit, right? The doctrine of inspiration. This is God speaking about humanity. You are grass, is what God says. Now, we think of ourselves as this mighty, strong, cunning, powerful human race. Look at the things that we've done. Look at the buildings we've made and the nations and the wars that we've been involved in. Look at all the things that we've done. And God says, dude, you're like grass. You're like grass. Grass that shoots up in the morning and is green and strong and full of vigor, but then by evening it's dead. Our life is compared to the length of a day. The length of a day. And after the sun has beaten down on us for a little while, we wither and die. We're here one moment and gone the next like grass, right? We're strong and vibrant for but a moment, right? In our early years, in our youth, we're strong and we're vibrant, but then we grow weak quickly and die. And some of you guys have seen this in your parents and in your grandparents. They used to be so strong when you were a child. Weren't they strong and vibrant and full of life and full of vigor like green grass? And now they've withered. Maybe they've passed away. And it didn't take very long for it to happen, did it? Your father, who used to pick you up and throw you around whenever you were a child, might be dead. It did not take very long for it to happen. And even the strongest, richest, most powerful people on earth will fade away like grass. James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 says, Let the lowly brother exalt in his exalt, or boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he, the rich, will pass away. Nothing can stop this from happening. 
Not money, not power, not nothing. No one is exempt. All die and all die quickly. So I want to pose a question. Do you really view yourself this way? Seriously, do you really view yourself this way? Do you look at your own life and say, I am like grass? Do you really understand that life is short and that your death is soon coming? And don't forget this, that after death comes the judgment of God. All men die once and then are judged, and the wicked are then appointed to the second death, hell. I think that we accept that as a fact, but we don't really spend much time thinking on it deeply. Right? We accept it as fact, but we don't really spend a lot of time thinking about it. Right? Like me and Juice, right? me and OJ, uh, we were out evangelizing a couple of weeks ago, right? door knocking like good Baptists. And, uh, and, and as we went there, uh, as we're out in Portsmouth doing this, we knocked on a, a, a door of a 21-year-old girl, and she came out and she was talking to us. And, and over the course of us uh, declaring the gospel to her, going through the law and the gospel, toward the end of it, as we were pleading with her to repent and believe, we said, hey, you know that all people die and then have to give an account to God for their lives, right? And she replied, yeah, I try not to think about death because it's sad and it scares me. Right? Tell me, I'm telling the truth. She was visibly shaken up whenever we started talking about death. She did not want to think about it. We don't like to think about our own mortality. It's uncomfortable. Right? We like to pretend like we're going to live forever. We really do. But how foolish could we be to not spend much time thinking on the truth that we are going to die and then stand in judgment before the God of the universe and judge of all men. How foolish could we be? We'd have to be crazy to let even one day pass without considering this monumental truth. We'd have to be crazy. But Moses then goes on to remind us of why we die and that God is the judge. Verse 7, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. We are brought to an end, meaning we die in this life. We're consumed, I think is what the King James says. We're consumed by His anger. We die in this life because God is angry over sin. We die because we are sinners. Right? Death was not originally part of being human. It wasn't in the garden. It was not originally part of being human. But since Adam fell into sin, right, and sin spread to all and death to all through sin, what Paul says in Romans 5, since Adam fell into sin in the garden as the federal representative of all mankind, since that point, mankind has been cursed by God to die once and then be judged by Him according to how we lived our lives. To render an account to God. We pass away under his wrath because as sons and daughters of Adam, we have inherited the curse. You came from dust, and to dust you will return. And God knows all of our sins. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. That's terrifying. That's terrifying. Nothing is a secret to God. Nothing is secret to him. He sees all. All. He knows all. And we cannot hide. Right? We can hide from people. We can put on a front in front of other people. But not from the all-present, all-seeing God. Whatever we think that we've done in the darkness, Moses says, is exposed by His bright presence. Whatever you think you've done behind closed doors, God has seen. 
Nothing is dark to him. I think it's why David says, I could, if, I, if I went to the depths of the grave, the depths of Sheol, there you are. I can't escape what you see. I can't escape your sight. Nothing escapes him. He sees your heart. And that's not good. Contrary to American culture, your heart is not good. Bless his soul, he has a good heart. No, he doesn't. He's a sinner. He's a rebel against God. God sees your hearts. He sees your actions. He sees your thoughts. He hears your words. All of it. Think about that. Every single thing that you have ever done or ever will do, God knows. So somebody say this. Since we're going to die, and we are sinners, and God is angry over sin, and he has seen our whole life, we should stop and pause and think very hard about our lives. What kind of a life have I lived in the presence of this God? What have I done with my time? Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Right? Every day, there are reminders of our coming death. Right? We pass away under your, under your wrath. Uh, Puritan said every day there is a pang and expression of the curse. Right? We're reminded of our coming death by tiredness. Right? You get tired after you work. Why? Because this is God's gracious reminder. Hey, you're under a curse, and one day this tired body is going to wear out. Right? You're weak. Why? Because one day this body is going to wear out. You get sick. Why? Same thing. You see tragedies strike in different places. You see the deaths of friends and family and even strangers. They're all daily reminders to us that we are going to die. We pass away under His wrath. And then our own lives are over as quickly as a sigh is let out of your mouth. And it's over. But verse 10 really grabs our attention. I thought this was one of the most profound verses. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Moses says that if we live to die of natural causes, we will live to be 70 or 80. Right? And I get it. Some people might live longer, and that doesn't mean that the Bible has an error in it. Right? There are exceptions that prove the rule. Right? That's why it's a big deal whenever you meet someone that's like 90 or 100, or like the 100-year-old, like the smuckers thing with all the old people. I'm talking about on like today's show or whatever. That's a big deal whenever someone turns 100 because it doesn't happen. There are exceptions that prove the rule. But think about that 70 or 80 years. That's it for most of us. 70 or 80 years. That is not long. It might seem long to some of us, especially if we're young, but that's very short. So, a question for you by Moses' words here how much time do you have? If you live to die of natural causes, how much time do you have left? Right? Like, I'll be 27 soon, so I have 43 or 53 years. Now how long do you have left? 40, 50 years? For some of the older people here in attendance, how much time do you have left? 15, 20 years? How much time do you have? How have you spent your years? How have you spent your years? How will you spend the rest of them in light of your coming death and judgment? How much time have you wasted in sin and foolishness? 
I can't stress it enough, guys. Our lives are short. And you could die today. You could die. And again, I hate the scare tactic stuff, and I'm not trying to do that, but this is what Moses is pointing at. We're like grass, right? You could die before you go home today. It happens. There was a shooting in Orlando at a gaming convention today. Did any of them, I don't know if there's any fatalities, but did anyone know that that was going to happen today? Were they there enjoying their time playing games? Did they have any idea that that was going to happen? No. You could die this week. Before Christmas comes, you might be out of here. We are soon dead. Our time on earth will be over faster than you think. But in light of our impending deaths and judgment to come, Moses poses a rhetorical question to us in verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? What a stunning question. We live 70 or 80 years, but Lord, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath? That's a rhetorical question. Nobody fears God the way they should. No one fears God the way they should. Right? And please hear me out. I know that fear often has like a connotation of like awe and reverence, but like may we never forget that when the Bible used the word fear, it also means fear. Right? Last time I checked the Hebrew in my dictionaries, it does mean to be to fear. But nobody fears God the way they should. Nobody fully comprehends, right? No one really comprehends how much God hates sin. No one really understands the depth of the fury of the wrath of God. And this, I would argue, is self-evident. Because if we truly feared God and His wrath, we would live much differently. I'm even talking to Christians here, right? I'm not just talking to the unconverted that might be among us. Even as Christians, if we fear God's discipline, and He says, I discipline all of my legitimate children. If we feared His fury or wrath whatsoever, we would live much differently, even believers we would. But our constant willful rebellion and waste of our lives and worldly pursuits and pleasures are proof that we don't really consider the power of God's anger against sin. How much He detests it. Right, so God truly hates sin and has wrath for it. Right? That, that, that's, that's the big point of that verse. He really hates sin and really has wrath. So just go here with me. Think about the thing that you hate more than anything in this world. And I'm not being trite when I say that. I mean, like, is it pedophilia? Is it rape? Is it drugs? Murder? Adultery? What is it that you hate more than anything in the world? God hates even the smallest sin infinitely more than you hate that. Infinitely more. Even the smallest bit of rebellion against Him. Because how dare His creation defy Him? And now think of the worst punishment that you can possibly fathom. The worst kind of torture and pain in the world. God's wrath against unrepentant sinners is even more terrible than anything that we could possibly fathom. It's so awful, we can't comprehend it. I would argue this. Whenever the Bible describes hell as flames, that's the worst description that we have, but it's worse than that. That's the point. How differently would we live if we truly understood how much God hates sin and that we will soon give an account to him for our lives? I'm talking to Christians as well. 
that we'll all give account. So a summary real quick. Our lives are quickly over and we don't have much time and we are weak and we are sinners and we die and God's hatred of sin is real and there is a coming, coming reckoning with our maker. And in light of that, Moses makes a request to God. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's his request. Everything was setting up to that, reflecting on his own mortality, reflecting on the mortality of the people of God, of people in general. Lord, teach us to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. Now, this is a petition to God. The, by the way, the rest of the psalm is, is Moses making requests of God in light of what he set up in verses 1 through 11. We're just going to focus on 12, though. It's a petition. It's a request for wisdom. Ultimately, that's what it is, a request for wisdom. And please hear me. Understand this. He's begging God for wisdom. And unless God answers this plea for wisdom, we will not become wise. Right? You're not going to white-knuckle yourself into this. Wisdom is grace from God. It's grace from Him. We need God to grant wisdom to us because if He doesn't, if God doesn't grant wisdom, we can understand things intellectually, but it will not change how we live and what we believe. It won't. We, we can understand intellectually that we're going to die, but it won't change us unless God gives us wisdom to apply that knowledge, unless He puts it in our hearts and not just in our heads. Right? I see people say every day, right? all the time I work, I, I work at my family's convenience store, Right? And I see people say, yeah, man, you only live once. Right? And can we stop saying that, the whole YOLO thing, please? But they'll say, like, you know, we only live once, and we're all going to die someday. And then they go out and live like fools. You only live once is a common motto amongst some of the most wicked people that I've ever met. They understand intellectually that they're going to die, but then they go out and live in opposition to God and live a life apart from Christ. They have gained no wisdom from their knowledge that our life is short, but instead it's plunged them headlong into sin. Because unless God grants wisdom, unless God gives us the grace of wisdom, we will profit nothing from understanding that we have a short life. So our prayer is, Lord, stamp this upon my heart and help me to really know that I am finite and that death is certain and that I'll stand before you. That's our prayer. Stamp this on my heart. And if God grants us wisdom to number our days, I think there's going to be a couple of general ways that we're going to become wise. I think there's a couple of general ways. The first piece of wisdom that I think God's going to give us, or rather I would say biblically God's going to give us, if he gives us wisdom, is that we would fear him. Is that we would fear him. And again, I mean fear. I mean to be afraid. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So I think this is the first thing he's going to give us. Again, real fear. Fear of his wrath. Fear of eternal punishment. And from this fear, from this fear of God, this raw terror of Him and His threatenings and His punishments, something marvelous will be produced. The unconverted sinner will run to Christ. 
The unconverted sinner will run to Christ if they really fear God. Like the hymn says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear is relieved." I love that line. It's the grace of God that we would fear Him, and then through the gospel, He relieves that fear. The reason why I say the unconverted sinner will run to Christ is because if you really understand that someday God is going to judge you and he has seen everything that you've done and you really know that you're a sinner, if you really consider his wrath and that he hates sin, you will seek a savior. You'll seek a savior. You'll look for someone to stand in the gap between you and God in the judgment. You'll look for a mediator between you and God and God has provided such a savior in his son. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, take on, takes on flesh and who has taken our sins upon himself on the cross and was punished by God in place of sinners, who suffered the wrath of God that we deserve for our foolish living, who has taken the curse of Adam upon himself. It says, punish me in their place. The Lord Jesus who not only died for us, but who lived righteously in place of sinners, right? Ne never living foolishly, but always living wisely in obedience in place of those who would believe on him. Suffering the wrath of God, paying the debt that we owe to God for our sin, satisfying the wrath of God, satisfying his anger, and then living in our place. God sent his son so that through faith in him, we would have our sins forgiven and the righteousness of Jesus Christ would be given to us so that we could be reconciled to this God who hates sin. So that even though we die in this body, we would be raised to eternal life in the life to come. If God grants us wisdom to number our days, we will run to Christ to save us. So please hear me. There are some new faces here. If you are not a believer and your life will evidence that, Right, that you don't follow Christ daily in faith and, and, and obedience and repentance whenever you sin. If that's not you, please repent and believe on him. Your time is short. Don't deceive yourself with external forms of religiosity. Run to the Savior and trust in him. He's lived and died in your place so that you might be reconciled to the God that you've sinned against who sees everything that you've done. If God grants wisdom, the unconverted sinner will run to him. And for the believer, this wisdom, this fear of God will cause us to cling even more tightly to Jesus. Right? This, applies, this goes both ways. Right? The gospel is not something that gets you in the door. You keep running back to the gospel. Right? You keep going back to Christ and him crucified. We're going to realize more and more our daily sins and our daily misuse of our time. And we're going to see more and more that our death is imminent. And then we're going to see our continued need for Christ. You didn't used to need him. If God grants you wisdom to fear him, you will see that you daily need the Savior. So for the already converted person, for the Christian, the fear of the Lord will cause us to tighten our grip on Christ and see him more clearly as a great Savior. But more wisdom will come too, another general piece of wisdom. Disobedience to God, I am convinced, will become bitter to us. It won't be so attractive when we understand how imminent our death is in a coming reckoning with our maker. Sin will not be so attractive. Pornography will not look so good. Losing your temper with your spouse will not seem worth it. 
Chasing money won't seem so important. Laziness and idleness won't seem so fun or like such a good use of your time. Fear of man and the opinions of human beings will not be such a big deal to you. As we consider the shortness of life and our giving an account to God, we're going to see clearly the foolishness and worthlessness of disobedience to God. Right? Even as Christians, we don't want to have to answer for our sins at the judgment. Right? So hear me out. Even though we're saved, and I don't deny that, I don't deny the imputed righteousness of Christ, but what I see in the Scriptures is that we're still going to give an account of some sort. And, every, and they were all judged, every man according to their works. It's every man. That doesn't, I don't think we're going to be exempt from that. We don't want to have to answer for our waste of time and our foolishness. We don't want to see our disobedience judged and then burned away like hay and stubble and shown to be a worthless, God-dishonoring, foolish waste of time. On the other hand, obedience will be sweet to us because we'll begin to see that a God-honoring life is all that matters in an eternal sense because our life is over quickly. Obedience to God will all be all that matters because it's all that's going to last the test of judgment. So as we number our days, we'll see that the pleasures of sin are fleeting and they won't last. They'll have, they have no eternal significance and they're ultimately a waste of time. And we'll begin to live our lives in the light of the next 10,000 years. And disobedience will become a bitter taste to our mouth. And it'll seem worthless to us because it is. And I know that I've been up here preaching for a while. Uh, but please bear with me uh, as I have two particular points of wisdom. So those were general things. You're going to run to Christ and disobedience is not going to seem that attractive. But two particular points of wisdom that we're going to gain as we number our days. And these are really important. I think they're especially timely uh, for our congregation. Right? I don't write sermons for other churches. I write them for us. The first is this. I think that how we deal with our families will change if God gives us a heart of wisdom to number our days. Married people and parents, I'm looking at you. I'm looking at myself, too. This, I, you take six days worth of a beating before you can preach to other people. How you deal with your family is going to change. You won't be so concerned with getting them everything they need and most of what they want. I'm not saying you won't want to provide for your family. That's God-honoring. That's something you should do. But you won't be so consumed with that stuff. But rather, we'll become more concerned with the spiritual health of our households as we consider how short life is and that your precious family members are going to die someday. You'll be much more concerned with the spiritual health of your spouse and your children. The games and presents and trips and junk won't matter so much to us. We won't devote ourselves to sports and extracurricular stuff at the expense of spiritual things. Instead, you'll devote your time to praying with and for your spouse and your children and spending time in Scripture as a family. You'll talk much of Christ and salvation through Him. And you'll seek to build up your family in the faith and train your children in the fear of the Lord and knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you'll do this because you want your household to see for themselves that life is short. You want them to see for themselves that knowing and walking faithfully with God is all that truly matters. We'll deal with our families. We'll deal differently with them. 
We'll be more concerned about them spiritually because we want them to be wise and see what God has caused us to see as we number our days. And second, particular point I think we'll gain wisdom on as we number our days. How we spend our free time will change. God help us. This is every one of us. Every one of us. We won't waste our time on foolishness and things that are not worthwhile. We won't devote ourselves to the pursuit of worldly pleasure. And I don't just mean sin when I'm saying that. I literally mean worldly pleasure. Right, like gaming and television and films and social media and fiction. Right, I mean, what I, must, I mean amusement in general. We won't devote our lives to the pursuit of amusement. I think Satan has done a great job in our culture of promoting laziness and a mentality that says everything exists so I can have fun. And I'm entitled to have a good time as often as I can. No. No. Absolutely not. But be honest. This is us more often than we'd care to admit. All of us. And it's not biblical. It's ungodly. It's ungodly. Now hear me out. I'm, I'm not doing the old thing. I'm not saying that you can't enjoy those things in their proper measure. They're gifts from God. God wants us to enjoy His creation and the things that He's given to us. But amusement will not be the focus and bulk of our lives if we understand that our days are short. God really hates sin and that all men will die and give an account to Him. We will not waste our days on amusement and pleasure. We won't think that we're entitled to it. Rather, we'll seek to make the best use of our time. To redeem the time, as Paul says in Ephesians. We'll spend our time studying the Scriptures and reading good books. We'll spend our time being a people of prayer. Oh, Lord, help us to know that one. We will spend our time being a people of prayer. You guys have probably read this quote from from John Piper, and I'm probably going to butcher it. He says, social media will have its proper use on the day of judgment because it will be proof that we it's not because of a lack of time that we didn't pray. That hurts. We'll be a people of prayer if we know that our lives are short. We'll spend our time conducting family worship reading the scriptures and praying with our family and talking about the things of God with our children and our spouses. We'll spend our time reaching out to unsaved family and friends to tell them the gospel and their need of a Savior because their time is short as well. We'll strive to encourage our fellow believers as they strive to be faithful. We'll encourage them to faithfulness, stirring one another up to faith and good works. We'll try to serve our local congregations as best we can. However we can, we'll offer ourselves as servants to the church. As we see our own mortality and eternity on the horizon, we will strive with all of our might to know and love God and to do good for our neighbor. So in closing, may God grant us wisdom and teach us to number our days. May God grant us the wisdom to see that our time is short. 
The wisdom to trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. The wisdom to forsake disobedience. The wisdom to spiritually care for our families. And the wisdom to not waste our lives. May God grant us the wisdom to live in light of death, judgment, and eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sobering truths that we read in Psalm 90. God, help us to be wise people, not to live like fools. Like your word says, the time for living like Gentiles is past. The time for living like someone who doesn't know God is over. We spent enough time living that way. Lord, help us to live as those who know you, who, who understand that our time is short, who understands that there's a judgment for all men. There's a, there's a reckoning and an account to give for all men. God bless us and help us. Grant us grace. Your wisdom is grace to us. Lord, seal these truths to our heart that we might be changed. Help us to cling tightly to the Savior. God, above all other things, I thank you for giving us the Redeemer that we need. Because indeed, your wrath is real. But we know that your Son has taken your wrath in our place, and we thank you for him. Lord, bless us and keep us. Grant us wisdom. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.